someone needs to signal to me if I need to shorten the second song. Because I can do it. Everybody, we'll get started in just a moment. This is your 30-second warning. We'll get started in just a second. Welcome, welcome everybody to the Sunday gathering of Covenant Grace Columbia. We are so glad to have you here. I see many familiar faces and some new faces alike, so thank you for joining us on this Sunday morning. If you are new to Covenant Grace, on your back of your bulletin you got on the way in, there is a QR code to scan. Please, please, please let us know that you visited with us today. We'd love to catch you and talk with you afterward. Uh, but this helps us keep a record of your visit and to stay in touch with you if you would like to be uh, in the know of what is going on here at Covenant Grace. We'd love to keep in touch with you that way. A few other QR codes there to be aware of to get involved in service here at the church. If this is your church home and you want to plug in here and serve alongside us and, and, uh, and come alongside the different areas that we have need in, then that will be your on-ramp to do so. Um, that's how we get in touch with you to see where we think you might be the best fit. Uh, in a filling out of that form does not commit you to anything. It just starts the conversation. And then we can from there even see if you want to commit to a certain ministry or just say, I want to try this one out for a little while, see if this is what would fit best for me. You can serve on your schedule. You're not, you're not committed to anything um, into a box, so to speak. Uh, we'll we'll want to work with you in that way. Uh, and also a QR code for, for giving as well. All of our service and our giving is done from a place of rest. Um, we don't guilt you into that. We're not twisting your arm behind your back saying you got to do this in order for God to be happy with you. He's happy with us in Christ and we rest in that for what Christ has done for us. And everything that we do from there is from a place of rest and we love one another in this way. And it's a wonderful tool for us to be able to do that. Uh, but when it comes to the, uh, the QR codes there on the back, um, that should lead to all those things for you. Uh, upcoming some uh, calendar events. It looks like it's all in 2024 on the back of the uh, the bulletin there. So we're looking forward to uh, Christmas Eve next Sunday here at church and uh, the Christmas week. And then we'll enjoy uh, some things coming up here in the new year with our grace groups resuming back up and things of that nature. Well, let's move into our worship time. Let's hear God call us to worship from his word, from Psalm 83, I'm sorry, from Psalm 24, Psalm 24, hear God call us to worship. 
through his word. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, and let the king of glory come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. It is him we worship. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. O God, our Father, in the words of the psalmist, do not keep silence in our midst, we ask. Do not hold your peace or be still in our midst today, O Lord. We are your people and we long to see you. We long to hear your voice and we echo the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 83 who said, please don't keep silent. Speak. We ask that you would visit us with your spirit's powerful presence and that you'd speak to us with your word of truth and with your sacrament and through the singing and may you be honored and glorified and praised in our midst today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. On the inside of your bulletin today, church, we have a prayer of confession. And we start our service in this way to remind us of where we are coming from. Each and every one of us has failed God, not just on a high level, a sin level where we know that we're all sinners, but if we get down to the brass tacks, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, this week we have individually thought things, done things, said things that ought not to have done. And we have left undone things that we should have done. None of us has lived up to what God's law holds us to, and we've fallen short. And we are all in equal need of God's grace. And so we corporately confess our sin together. And so I want to invite you to stand with me, and we'll take this liturgy and pray this prayer of confession. But before we do, we'll take a few moments for us to pause and consider our individual sins and failures this week so that we confess those as we confess them corporately in just one moment. Would you please confess with me? Let's pray. O oh, almighty and merciful Father, you pour your benefits upon us. Forgive the unthankfulness with which we have requited your goodness. We have remained before you with senseless hearts, unkindled with love of your gentle and enduring goodness. Turn us, O oh, merciful Father, and we shall be turned Make us with our whole heart to hunger and thirst after you, and with all our longing to desire you. Amen. Brothers and sisters, 
we can rejoice today. Even though we have sinned, and sinned greatly, we can rejoice in what Christ has done for us. Let me read for you what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 61. He said, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in the Lord, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He will cover me with the robe of righteousness. That robe of righteousness, as we picture the story of the prodigal son who leaves and wastes his substance in riotous living, in sensual living, in sinfulness, comes back home to find a father only ready to meet him, running after him. And what does he do? He meets him with his robe, with his identity. All of the surrounding neighbors would have seen this scene and passing buyers who were not realizing who this was would have assumed the identity of the man in the robe as the father. But no, the man in the robe was the sinner. The man in the robe was the one who wasted it all. But he was covered in the robe of righteousness. You and I, though we have sinned greatly, have that robe as our own. Not because we've earned it, not because we prayed a prayer, not because our faith was great enough. No, we've just confessed our own sinfulness together and we do so running to the Father, coming back home, not running away trying to hide it because we know that the Father who runs to meet us greets us with his own righteousness. How was this provided to us? It wasn't just he said, okay, yeah, now you're forgiven. No, his own son lived a sinless, perfect life. He was born under the law and obeyed it perfectly. Yet he died a sinner's death that you and I deserved. He conquered sin, hell, and death in the grave by not only living rightly, but dying for us and rising again. And in so doing, imputing to us righteousness that is not our own, but his. So when the father looks at each and every one of us today, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And that is true for each and every one of us who has put our faith and trust in him. Isn't that good? All God's people said, amen. And it is from that truth that we rest in that we sing and look forward to what, look back to what many look forward to the birth of Christ. In this Isaiah's prophecy, he's looking forward to what will happen, what will come. But we know that we have this righteousness because of what has already happened. And let's sing this, O Holy Night, together.
Indeed, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom each and every one of us can say we are the foremost. That's why we're here. Go ahead and have a seat if you would. As you do, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. As you said, when I do that, I just want to first uh, thank you guys for last week. Uh, our Christmas sing was a great joy, at least to me. I had a great time. I had a great time doing all the work to get it ready and tearing it down. I had a great time. Uh, praising our God out in our community and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ uh, out uh, there at Riverwalk Park. So thank you, all of you. There were so many hands here contributed to that and made it happen. So thank you so much for being a part of it. Uh, it was a joy to be able to do that together as a church. And then looking ahead, uh, next Sunday is Christmas Eve. Uh, we are going to be doing one service. Uh, I want to have all of us together for that. I know sometimes churches do a whole bunch of different services. We're just going to pack everyone in. we got a big gym. I imagine there will be a few people around for Christmas Eve. Uh, but we're going to put everybody in here. Uh, kids are going to be in the service with us, so no classes. Uh, we love having your kids in here anytime. And we're going to have them all in next week, which is a joy. Uh, we love that. Uh, and if they are a little bit noisy, they move around a little bit, we do not care. We love them, so don't let that ever be a hang-up for you here. Um, and then we're going to do, uh, have a service. We're going to kind of take a break from where we are in Matthew, focus on the incarnation. Uh, we're going to sing some of the older, richer hymns around the incarnation, uh, some from as early as like the 500s. Uh, we're going to look at some of the creeds that the church has confessed that describe the orthodox view of the incarnation, and hopefully it'll just be a very, very rich service of dwelling on this miracle of true God becoming true man for the sake of our salvation. So I really look forward to seeing you all next week as we continue to do really what we do every week, right? Proclaim Christ, rest in Jesus' finished work, and give him honor and praise for it. So now we get the privilege of sitting under his word together as we do each week. Uh, we need it. And our text this week is one that is probably familiar to you if you've been around the church at all. It's one of those stories you get in Sunday school. Uh, it's pretty well known. Uh, Jesus calms a storm. Matthew 8, 23-27. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped with waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We confess that we need it. Um, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we come uh, here today um, to receive a feast, a feast from your hand, a feast that we desperately need. Lord, I pray that you oh, would not find my weaknesses a hindrance, but that rather they would show off your magnificence and glory all the more because of the contrast uh, Father, I pray that you would give us uh, the eyes of faith, that you would give us open ears, soft hearts that would be willing to be shaped and formed by your word, that we would not try to conform it to our image, but that we would be shaped by it, and that ultimately, Lord, you would care so well for your people through your Holy Spirit. When we, we have a gathering this big, it's such a joy to look out and to see all of these people that you've brought together, 
But there is so much life represented here. There are so many struggles and sufferings and hardships. Everybody is going through things different. And yet you, in your wisdom and your power, you are able to care for each one. And so we are trusting you to do that this morning by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. Nothing new, really, in the story we read this morning. It's fairly simple. Right? We have an account of a ship caught in a storm. But the, the, the account of the ship caught in the storm really focuses on those on board the ship, those who are caught in the midst of this and their responses. Right? There's one ship, there's one storm, but there are two very, very different responses to these circumstances. On the one hand, we see the disciples who are here in the boat with Jesus. And as they respond, they reveal themselves to be men of little faith. We're gonna talk about that. And then on the other hand, we have Jesus, who shows himself to be the Lord of storms. Now really, this is where the meat of this passage lies for us, is looking at these two responses. We're going to look at the faith of the disciples, this little faith, and look and see what this means and has for us. And then we're going to look at what it means for us that Jesus is the Lord who has authority even over the wind and the waves, things that are so beyond our control. And then we're going to see that when those things come together, we have a fantastic, beautiful image of the work of God for us who brings us through not just physical storms, not just the storms of life, the things that are difficult, but is able even to bring us through the storm of death itself, through it and into life. So let's start by looking at the disciples. Right, so the Sea of Galilee, that's what they're on. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee to go to another part of Israel to minister. And the Sea of Galilee is a fairly small you know, calling it a sea is kind of generous. It's a pretty small body of water, pretty shallow body of water. And so generally the waves and the tide is, is pretty small. But geographically, there's some factors that allow for these storms to kind of sweep in from the east, these strong east winds. And so it goes from being very placid, very calm, glassy, to unusually large waves for the size body of water that it is. Um, in recent times, since we started measuring these sorts of things, Waves on the Sea of Galilee can get up to about 10 feet, which is, you know, if you go down to the Florida Panhandle to hang out at the beach down there, that's bigger than anything you get there. We get stuff like that out in California where I came from last. Uh, but these are like ocean-sized waves, not, not little sea, lake sort of waves that can crop up on the Sea of Galilee. And they can come up very quickly and very suddenly and very strongly, very easy to get caught up in them. This is apparently one of those types of storms because it comes in, the, the, the way the text describes it, the, the boat is just getting swamped with this water. The, the water is basically going over the deck, everything's drenched, and to the point where the disciples think they're going to die. And just so we remember, some of us aren't very comfortable in the water, we think we're going to die over very little things. Okay. Four of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. They spent their life out on this particular sea fishing it. They know it. They're very comfortable out there. And they all think they're going to die. This is an intense storm. They're not comfortable at all. And this is how they respond. 
They go to Jesus and they wake him and they say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. The word for perishing literally means we're going to be destroyed. That's where they're at. They see what's going on and that's what they think is going to happen. It is inevitable at this point. What is going on is going to crush them. They cannot navigate this kind of storm themselves. No matter how much time they had on the water, all this time fishing, this is beyond them. And Jesus says to them, why are you afraid of you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. So Jesus' response to the disciples coming to him, he he goes to their faith. He says, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Now, before we unpack this, I want to talk about how we should not hear this first, because I think we often hear this a way we shouldn't, right? I think a lot of times we hear this as a rebuke, like Jesus wakes up, and he wakes up the way I wake up when my daughter gets me up at two o'clock in the morning, which is not my best self, we'll be honest. Um, it's, it, it's rough. It's rough, guys. Hopefully you can understand and have grace for me in that, right? Um, so we, Jesus is fast asleep and he gets woken up. He's like, really, guys? Really? Why don't, come back to me when you have some real faith. Like, this is ridiculous, right? Kind of upset, mad, rebu- almost being rebuked for their lack of faith. Well, so how dare you have so little trust? Well, the problem is, if we view it that way, if we hear the words of Jesus that way, our tendency is going to be to think, oh, so for me to come to Jesus, I have to drum up a certain amount of faith, a certain amount of strength. I need to get strong in order to come to Jesus. I don't come to Jesus in my weakness and dependence. I have to get to a certain level so Jesus isn't irritated with me. And that is not at all the way Scripture teaches us to come to Jesus, is it? No. We are supposed to come to him in our weakness. Jesus does rebuke something in this passage, but what he rebukes is the wind and the waves, not the disciples. Right. Well, the way we should hear Jesus' words is we should hear these with compassion. Right? They come to him and they wake him up. They are in absolute terror. He loves these people, and they are absolutely, they think they're going to die. And so he is moved with compassion. And so when he's saying, oh, ye have little faith, he's saying, like, like, you don't have to be afraid like this. He's not saying, knock it off, get better, be stronger. He's saying, like, you, there's no need for this. Similar to on the Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about uh, being anxious. He's like, you don't need to be anxious about your life. And what does he, why does he say so? Because look at what your father does. He dresses the wildflowers. He feeds the birds. All these things that don't do anything, he takes care of them. Doesn't he love you and care for you more? He's not saying, how dare you be anxious? He's saying, no, but beloved, you don't have to be because of who your God is. That's the same thing Jesus is saying here. He's moved by compassion because he sees their terror. And he knows they don't have to be afraid like that if they really understood, if they really trusted, if they had more faith. And so that's how we don't want to hear it, and that's the more how we, we should hear this. We're like, why are you afraid when you don't need to be? And we've got to remember, this is coming on the heels of all sorts of stuff that should give the disciples a lot of confidence, right? We just had the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches with this incredible authority, and one of the things he preaches is that section about anxiety and fear. Just don't worry about your life. 
I feed the birds who don't even try to take care of themselves. I clothe the wildflowers and they look more beautiful than kings. Do I not love and care for you more? Not even a hair from your head falls unless I allow and permit it. You are so well cared for. There's something better for you than anxiety and worry. There's this this pseudo fake, uh, like placebo attempt at controlling things that you can't control. You don't need to because there's a sovereign and good God who controls them, who loves you and cares for you. So they heard that. And then they get off the mountain, they're done preaching, and then what do they see Jesus do it? Do after that. They see him make the unclean clean. They watch him heal incurable diseases. They watch him command and drive out evil spirits. Right? So they see his power and authority at work. And that's what's been going on right up until this point, until they get in the boat and go across the sea. So we can stand back at this on the outside and be like, come on, disciples, really? You just saw all this stuff. It's all this has been going on. Why wouldn't you trust? Why wouldn't you have faith? They've heard of God's sovereignty and his goodness. They've seen it made manifest in Jesus, yet they struggle to trust him once they are in the midst of their own storm, once they are hard-pressed, once they are threatened. So what do we make of this? What, what, what What is the Lord showing us through this account of the disciples. Well, I think the key, we need to talk about faith. And particularly, we need to talk about three types of faith, or the difference between three types of faith. We need to talk about the difference between no faith, weak faith, and strong faith. No faith, weak faith, and strong faith. First, I want to talk to you about weak faith versus no faith, because these two things are very different. It might sound kind of close, weak and none, that, that, that sounds close. They are worlds apart. They are worlds apart, and this is important to grasp. Because often, when we hear this account, and we hear what the disciples are saying, we kind of look down on them. We do the same thing when we read Israel in the Old Testament, and they're complaining about stuff. You're like, didn't, Jesus, didn't God just do all this stuff for you? Why are you complaining? Right? It's so easy for us to do that from the outside. So it's easy for us to think poorly of the disciples here. How could they have such little faith? But it overlooks something here. What the disciples do here is not all a negative example, right? If we hear that, we're we're missing the point because it overlooks a huge thing. What do they do? Where do they go? They go to Jesus. That is exactly what faith is supposed to do. They go to Jesus. They don't come confidently. They don't come in strength. But where do they end up? They end up at Jesus. There is a world of difference between weak faith and no faith or false faith. Scripture talks about this in other places, right? It talks about the faith of a mustard seed and what that can do, right? And that's because the most important thing about faith, we've talked about this before, is its object, right? It's not the strength of the faith that gives faith its value primarily. It's the object that it's in. Let's stick with boats. We're going to be on boats a lot today, right? So boats. Take this example, right? You're on a dock, and there's two boats. And if you're going to step into a boat, what matters the most? How seaworthy the boat is or how much confidence you have as you jump in? What actually matters for you to get the outcome you want? How confident you feel of the boat? The boat, right? 
Who cares how good you feel about it? If it's got holes in it, you're going to sink. You'll sink feeling very confident, but you're still sunk, right? The boat is the thing that matters, right? The object, not the amount of trust you have, but what your trust is in and does it hold up, right? So you may be very timid, very fearful, but if you get in the boat that holds, wa- that holds water, right, you'll be okay. You can be as confident as you want to, jump in a leaky boat, and it's not going to go well. Can't fix that one, right? This is the difference between a weak faith and no faith or a false faith, right? Even a weak faith receives a strong Christ, Thomas Watson said. Even a weak faith receives a strong Christ. What we see here with, with the disciples, it's, it's true faith. It's just weak. It's just weak in the midst of a storm. How do we know it's true faith? Because it ends up at Jesus. What they say to Jesus is beautiful and glorious. If if you're just going to stop and like pull it out of the context and don't lose it in the story, what do they say? Save us, Lord, we are perishing. That could be every Christian's motto. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. This is every single one of you. If you are in Christ today, you have declared this. Save me, Lord, I am perishing. We all share this in common, this declaration. That is a true and good word to say. You should come to Jesus saying that. Absolutely, you should. This is true faith. True faith goes to Jesus and depends on him. This is the refrain of every Christian. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. It's not something we move past. This is always what true faith cries out. It depends on Jesus totally and fully. So, Brothers, sisters, you will often feel that your faith is weak. But a weak faith in a true Christ is something worth rejoicing in. A true faith in, in the real Christ is something worth rejoicing in, no matter how feeble and how weak it may feel. Because the strength you need is not in the strength of the faith, it's in the strength of Christ. So if that's the case, if a weak but true faith will give us Christ, should we even care about if our, weak, our faith is weak or strong? Right? If it gets me Jesus, then that's enough, and can we just forget about this whole faith thing and move on? Is there any advantage to having greater faith? Absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. I think we can see this in an example we just saw a little bit earlier in the text of somebody who did have great faith. All right, that, that's, everybody remember somebody who had great faith a little earlier? Centurion, right? Jesus said he'd never seen faith like this anywhere else. Right? So he's, he's an obvious counterpoint to the disciples. Ye of little faith versus I've never seen faith like this before. And think about kind of the contrast between the centurion and the disciples. The disciples come, they're, they're panicked. They think they're gonna die. They come to Jesus out of, Absolute desperation, right? The centurion comes to Jesus in his need, right? His servant is sick. He loves him. He comes for him. But there's a different note to how he comes with him. There's no, he has no concern that Jesus can do this, right? He's not desperate in the sense of like, oh, I'm going to die, so I'm throwing a Hail Mary. He has, 
he's absolutely certain Jesus can do this, so much so that when Jesus offers to come with him and do it, he says, like, no, you don't even need to do that. I don't need to see it. I know if you just say you're going to do it, it's just it's going to happen. All right, so, so that's faith. So when you can imagine the centurion coming with that kind of confidence, this is a very different disposition. Like, Jesus can do this. I just come to him, make my need known, and he's going to do what he's going to do. It's a very different place than kind of the frantic picture you get of the disciples. They're coming in their need too, but they're not particularly confident that this is going to get taken care of, right? This is just absolute, utter desperation. We got nothing left to do. We've done everything else we can. Let's try Jesus. And I think this starts to point us to why strong faith or weak faith matter. True faith, whether it's weak or strong, receives a whole Christ. But your confidence in Christ, your degree of trust in him and his promises absolutely matters, and it absolutely shapes your life here and now and your experience of this life here and now. It has huge ramifications. Let's go back to our boat, our dock, okay? It's a little different now, though. There's, not two mo- there's no two boats anymore. We got rid of the, the leaky boat. One boat now. It's a good boat. It's the Jesus boat. No leaks, no holes, it's good. But we, we still have two people on the dock. One, because the boat's like, yeah, that boat's awesome. Let's go. I'm ready to take this thing wherever it goes. It'll get me where I'm going. The other person's looking at it like, I don't know. I don't like the water. It looks like those, those clouds down there. They're very tentative, hesitant, right? But they still get in the boat, Right? Both of those people are going to end up at their destination because the boat's good. But how different is the journey going to be for each of them? How different are they going to ride out the waves, the storms, the various things that are going to come up in this journey? How different is their experience of that going to be? Radically. The one is going to be constantly racked with uncertainty, doubting. Am I going to make it? Is it going to work? The other one is like, no, I can, enjoy, I can enjoy the ride because of the confidence in this. This is the difference in weak faith and strong faith, right? Any faith in Christ will get you home. But the greater faith, the greater faith and trust you have and confidence you have in the person and work of Jesus for you, the more you believe his promises are true, before you get to see their realization, you're going to have so much more consolation and comfort and care as you walk through a sin-cursed world, as you go through your own suffering, as you struggle and deal with the temptations of the flesh, as you live in a world that hates and despises our God, as you go through all the trouble and struggles of this world. They're hard. They are absolutely hard. What comfort do we draw in the face of that hardship? When you are not the person you want to be. I should be, I should be over this by now. Right? When your body does not work the way that you want it to. When your mind doesn't work the way you want it to and you're racked by depression or anxiety. So many things we walk through are so hard. People die and we lose them.
right? What is our comfort in the midst of that? It's the promises of God. It's the promises of God and the hope that we have in what Jesus has accomplished and the fact that he will ultimately make all things new and that sin and death will be destroyed and all that is broken will be made right and even death itself will be overcome by resurrection. That's our hope. That's how we walk through these things and we are not crushed by them because we can hope in the promises of Jesus. So the strength of your faith absolutely matters. Because when you're confident of those things, when you're confident of the work of Christ, that this will happen, even if it hasn't happened yet, it is surely, it is as certain as if it was already done. You will be able to ride out those waves in a totally different way than if you're doubting and uncertain and you are, and you are shaping your life based on your circumstances rather than the promises of God. Because that's what faith does, right? Faith looks at the promises of God and sees them as the most true thing more than what they can taste and touch and handle and see. This is what it means to walk by faith, not by sight. What God says is the most true thing. Let God be true and all the world a liar, right? That's what faith does. And so when we have a strong faith and we trust that firmly, we're able to ride through these things in a different way. Joy and peace in the midst of incredible difficulty. Church, Jesus is going to be faithful whether you are or not. His faithfulness is not depending on how much you believe in him. He's not a, it's like Tinkerbell or something. You gotta believe in him and, or if they don't, somebody doesn't believe in him, they get weaker. Oh, there's, some, some, there's some story like that, right? That's not Jesus. That's the point, right? He's not like that. He doesn't get stronger or weaker with how much you trust in him. He's not gonna lose any that are his. He's gonna bring every one the father has given him to eternal glory. It's a fact. Put it in stone. Nothing's changing that. But how much you believe that, how much confidence you have in that, in him and his promises, has a tremendous impact on how you think about everything you walk through in this life. Things like joy and peace are not the result of our circumstances. Right? It's not like, oh, just, if this storm would just be fixed, then, then I'll have all these things. No. They're, they're aspects of the fruit of the Spirit that spring forth from a confidence in Christ, regardless of the circumstances. So we want to have greater faith. Right? We want to have greater confidence. We want to have the kind of confidence that Jesus and his promises deserve. So how? Right? How? Well, we know faith is a gift. We talk about this all the time. Faith is a gift. It's something God does. This is not something you can just go home and drum up yourself. God gives us faith. And he tells us how he does it. Right? In Romans 10, he says that faith comes by hearing the word of God. Right? By hearing who he is and hearing his promises, the Holy Spirit takes those things and works faith in us. Right? The bottom line is the primary way that God builds your faith is through what we call his means of grace. There are things that he says in his word, I work through this. This is how I care for my people. And they are primarily, primarily the word of God, prayer, singing of the saints together, and all of this in the corporate body of the church. These are the means of grace. These are the things that God called us to, and he called us to them because he works through them. 
because he does this. Ephesians 4 talks about, I love how Ephesians is laid out. The first three chapters is this beautiful display of the gospel, of the work of Jesus Christ for us. And then chapter 4, Paul starts to talk about, okay, this is what that makes. And he starts talking about the church and the structure and the function of the church. One of the things he talks about, he talks about how he gives these people with these teaching gifts to the church so that they can equip the saints for ministry, so they can build built up. And one of the things that it says that that does is it keeps them from being tossed to and fro. It's this, this naval language again, right? To be tossed through about, about right, every wind of doctrine and all your circumstances, right? It's through what God does in the local church that, that anchors us and where he grounds us. It's the purpose of, of what we do when we gather together here is not to give you some kind of like religious high to to live on the rest of the week. We are, we're doing a bad job. Plastic chairs don't really like, you know, do that sort of thing, right? That's not what the church is for. The church is where we gather together to honor God for what he's done and we receive again Christ and his promises. Through the word, through the songs, through the prayers, through everything that we do, All of those things are meant to give you Christ and nurture and sustain your faith. Mature, strong faith doesn't come through silver bullet, diet pill sorts of things, right? Where you go and get a rush. It comes through long-term, consistent hearing, faithful proclamation of the word of God. Faithful proclamation of his promises and his faithfulness over years and years and years. There's no microwaving this. So if you want the Lord to grow your faith, if you want to have strong faith, if you want to be anchored and steadfast and not tossed to and fro, give yourself to a biblically faithful church. This is not a sales pitch. It doesn't have to be here if this is not your place. But find a church that's biblically faithful and put yourself there, right? Say, this is where God has called me, and I'm going to be here. Show up, even when you're bored or tired or there's more fun things to do out there. There always will be. But trust that God works through the means of grace that he says that he does. Love the people that God puts with you there. Let your pastors care for you and do what they are called to do and watch over your soul. And just plant yourself there and just plod. Don't jump from the next fashionable thing to the next fashionable thing to that you can do that your entire life and there is no substance to that right there's no way to microwave there's no thing to speed this up you just have to have a good diet for a long time and be in a community where you can do the things that God's called you to do which are very simple love the Lord your God with all your heart mind soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're called to do. And we do that from the power the Holy Spirit provides as we receive Christ and his promises here regularly. Simple, but hard. This is one of the biggest adjustments I had to make when I went into the military, right? Because you have this idealized picture of what the military is. And it's very, it's very fun, right? It's lots of running around and shooting cool things and blowing fun stuff up. But then you get there, and the reality is, 99% of the time, you are working on little, tiny, fundamental, boring stuff all the time, all the time. Getting 
slightly better at all these little fundamental things that ultimately let you do survive and be successful in that 0.1% of the time where things are crazy. But most of it is mundane. Just can you do the simple things faithfully and consistently? That's what the Christian life is like. Most of it is not flash. It's not sexy stuff that goes on a billboard and people adore it and glorify it. It's mundane. It's ordinary. Do you trust that God works through what he works through, what he says he works through? Then put yourself there. Right? Are you willing to do what he has called you to do with your life, which is love the Lord your God ultimately and your neighbor sacrificially? Or are you going to chase other things and find other ways to define what is good that appeal more to your personality or whatever else? Or we just do what he said and just commit yourself to that and trust him. That's how your faith ultimately gets nurtured and grows. So that's the disciples. The disciples who had little faith, but true faith. But now we need to look at the object of their faith. It's time to look to Jesus. See, confidence, faith, and trust in Jesus is, it's always well-placed. He never fails. And so the disciples run to him for salvation in the storm, and he delivers. All right, let's go back to the text. Picking up in verse 26, we read this. After they woke him up, he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is incredibly profound. There are a few things that make us feel as out of control as nature when it's riled up. Have you ever been in close proximity to a natural disaster? Tornado, hurricane, mudslide, earthquake, whatever. You've ever been, there's, there's this feeling of inevitability and just total helplessness. You can't do anything. You kind of you hide and hope for the best. That's what you do. You have absolutely, utterly no control. And for all the advancements we've made and science and technology and all that, we still can't do anything of this. We can maybe know they're coming a little bit better, and that's it. We still can't control it. So obviously, this command of the storm that Jesus has is a clear sign of his distinction from us. He is not like us. And the disciples are right to marvel at the storm's obedience to him. What sort of man is this? Because men don't get to do this. Men don't get to say, stop waves, and they listen. Men don't get to say, stop wind, and it listens. Just doesn't happen. The only sort of man who can do this is a man who is also true God. A man who, while he sleeps according to his human nature, is upholding all things according to the word of his power, according to his divine nature. That is the man who can do this. Which, by the way, underrated thing, and I can't prove this biblically, but the fact that Jesus is even sleeping here might also be a miracle. If you're on a little fishing boat with 10-foot waves, like, I don't care if you're not scared at all, you sure as heck are not sleeping. Like, it's not happening. So the fact that he's sleeping on this might actually be the first miracle. I'm not going to die on that hill, but just something to think about, right? 
So it's remarkable that Jesus command, can command the storm to stop. But if that's all we see, we're, we're missing the full extent of it. You see, the wind and the waves didn't just obey Jesus when they stopped. They were obeying him when they showed up. You realize this? Jesus didn't kind of just come into a problem like, oh no, things are bad, I better fix this. That's not it. If we think of God only as the greatest problem solver, we have an unorthodox and far too low view of who God is. He's not just able to adapt and overcome whatever comes his way better than anybody else. He never has to adapt and overcome because he ordains all things. He ordains all things. We spent a couple hours yesterday morning looking at chapter three of our confession of faith, which is about this very thing. And he begins this way, summarizing the teaching about God's decree, which is essentially how everything that's outside of God himself happens and operates. And it puts it this way. It says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. Everything that exists, exists because it is ordained by God. The storm came because Jesus ordained that it would come. It came the way that it did, when it did, because he ordained that it would come that way. He's sovereign over the entire universe, the spiritual forces of evil, and he's also sovereign over every speck of dust, every tiny little insect, every drop of rain goes exactly where he determines it will go. That is the, the extent to which his authority, his power reach. This includes things that we think are bad and even evil. Scripture is very clear that God is not the author of sin or evil. Absolutely not. He's not responsible for it, but it does teach that he permits it. He allows it and he uses it to accomplish greater goods. And we see this throughout Scripture, right? Just a few thoughts. Joseph, I mean, Joseph, like, like he articulates it so well. Or what happens to Joseph? His brothers get jealous. They sell him into slavery, right? Not a good thing. Anyone want to sign up for that? No thanks. Good. Right? But then what happens through that? Through that, God preserves his chosen people, which are ultimately the line through which Jesus is going to come. Right? That the way is prepared through Jesus, for Jesus, through his brothers selling him into slavery. And God graciously allows Joseph to see this and says, what you intended for evil, God did good with it. And this is what he does every time. Every single time. It's not just the, these little windows where we see it happen. Every single time something seemingly bad or wicked happens, it always gets turned on its head because God is in total control. What's going on in the world is not some epic battle where God and Satan are in conflict and we're not sure who's going to win. Satan is completely under the control of God. Anything he does, he gets to do because God permits it. We see this explicitly in the book of Job, right? 
<laughs> Satan has to report to God and tell him what he's been up to. And before he can do anything to Job, he has to get permission. And God gives it. Just kind of like, why, why would you do that, God? But what does he do through that? Right? Job goes through all this horrific stuff, right? But at the end, God himself comes and talks to him. And God reveals himself to him. So much so that Job, at, at the end of that, can say, I have nothing left to say. Seeing you, hearing from you, like that, that answers all the questions. You are enough. Think about the disciples here. What would they have chosen? Smooth sailing, right? Who wouldn't? That's what we all want on the boat, right? But then we see them. We see their weak faith. What do we think? Would they, what did they actually need? What actually serves their ultimate good better? Right? To have to throw themselves, to depend on Jesus, and to watch him be faithful. Far better for them. They would never pick it. But God used this hard, heavy thing to work a better good. He knows so much more than we do, right? We see the smallest little picture of things. We have no idea what all that God is doing through everything that he's doing, which is why we have to trust his promises and trust who he is. We don't get to see the whole picture. Even when we go through these things, the point is not to understand them. The point is that we have a God we can trust with them whether we understand or not. And who is faithful whether we understand or not. Now, the greatest example of this is Jesus himself. What's the worst thing that's ever happened in human history? The crucifixion of Jesus. It is the most evil thing that has ever been done. Nothing else is even close. Think about the other horrific stuff you see and you hate in the world. Nothing comes close to the murder of the Son of God. It is the most egregious thing that's ever been done. And yet it also accomplished the greatest, most essential thing that could ever be done, the forgiveness of sins, comes through that. Even at the point where it feels like darkness is winning, like, it, you imagine Satan in the demonic realm when Jesus dies. They're thrilled, right? Like, we won. They've been trying to do this since King Herod to kill this Messiah, and they've finally done it. But that moment is their undoing. Because as he dies, he crushes Satan's head and puts to death sin and death and brings his people out of death and into life. So our confidence is in Jesus, not simply because he's a God who's able to get you out of a jam when you get in one, but because he ordains every single thing in your life. Nothing in your life happens by accident. Not a thing. The good, the bad, he orders all of them for his glory, first and foremost. But this is the beautiful thing. Christian, if you are his, your good is bound up with his glory. If he has set his name on you, one of the ways he glorifies himself is by caring for you. Which is why we have passages like Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good, for those who are his, all things, not most of them, every single thing, which means every place you are in your life, everything you are called to walk through is the best place for you to be, no matter how hard it is, how difficult it is in terms of your ultimate good that God knows far better than you do. If there was a better place for you, he would have you there. His power, his wisdom, 
and his goodness are not just good, they are perfect in the way that he does these things. And listen to me, I know, I know so many of you are going through very difficult things. I can just scan the room, and just the ones I know about are just incredibly heavy. And I know like an iceberg, that's, that's the vast minority. That's the nature of this world. Jesus himself said, in this world we'll have trouble. Right? We carry around our flesh, this world is under a curse, and there are spiritual forces that hate us and want to destroy us. That's where we live. We live in a war zone, and that's a hard thing to do. Money's tight. There's physical and mental pain that you live with and deal with all the time. You've lost people that you love dearly and you miss them. You struggle with things that you thought you wouldn't struggle anymore. We could go on and on. And it's good that we have a God who's able to fix these things, who's able to calm a storm. That's good. But it doesn't all get relieved here. Not every storm gets calmed. There comes a day when that happens, but this is not it. This is not that day. So it is vitally important as you go through this world where we do have trouble, this world where we are strangers and exiles, looking forward to our ultimate home, that you know that you have a God, that however he works, whatever he brings you into, whatever he puts on your plate is the best thing for you in the ultimate sense. Not just a good thing, the best thing for you every single time. You may not understand why it's the best thing. There's all sorts of things in my life I can go back. I still don't know why I had to go through this. I still wouldn't pick it. I'd still pick something different. Lots of things. Like most of them are like that. But the God who ordered them has perfect control of everything. The God who ordered them has perfect wisdom. He knows the best way to do whatever he wants to do. And that same God is for me. And I know that because he already gave his life for me. The hands that ordain every one of my days are hands that bled for me. So though my days may be painful, they may be hard, they may want to be free of them more than anything, I have what I need to endure because I can rest in who my God is. And Christian, you have that too. You have that too. And you have it whether you feel it or not. This doesn't mean that you go through trials and you're happy about them and you think they're good. That's ridiculous. If that's the idea of faithfulness that you've gotten put in your head from somewhere, forget it. These things are bad. There's a reason Jesus came to die and he's going to get rid of them. They're bad. Suffering is downstream from sin. We want all of that to go away. Right? So it's not wrong to see these things as hard. But you have a God who's working through those things perfectly, faithfully. And he will not fail you. 
and he will not forsake you. All right, to wrap this up, guys, I want to back out and take one last bigger look at things. We've looked at the faith of the disciples. We've looked at the power of Jesus, who's the Lord of the storms. But as we, as we read scripture, one thing that we want to remember is that there's a perfect and deep and rich intentionality with everything that God does. There's nothing that's accidental or superfluous about what, what God does. Everything matters and means something. Nothing's coincidence. And there's a reason that all of this stuff takes place on a boat through a storm. That's not just kind of like a random spot for this interaction and everything to take place. If we look at the rest of scripture, water in in biblical times and biblical language represents chaos and judgment and death. And this isn't just an Israel thing. This is just culturally in the ancient Near East. Which makes sense, right? Water's chaotic. You can't control it. If you go in it for longer than like two minutes, you die. It's scary stuff. But God uses this to teach us about his work in the world. This isn't the first time that God's people have passed through a water that was going to kill them because of the work of God. This is something that God's done before. It should call our mind back to some of these previous things. The first one is Noah's Ark. You guys remember that? Right? The world is wicked and evil, so God's going to judge it. But what does he do before he does? He says, Noah, build an ark. And Noah and his family go in the ark, and God seals it by his spirit. And then he sends judgment through water that wipes out everybody else on the earth except for this family who passes through the water of death and judgment and comes out again on dry land because they are sealed in the ark that is Christ. That's, that's what that's picturing. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter three eighteen through 21. This is what you're supposed to see there. All right, a little bit later on, crossing the Red Sea. God's freeing his people from slavery, bringing them out of Egypt. He's done all these, these incredible things to free them from the tyranny of Pharaoh. And they're leaving, and now they're pinned between the sea and Pharaoh's army, and they're going to die. So God parts the waters. They walk through on dry ground. And then as Pharaoh's army moves into the water, they collapse back on him and wipe Pharaoh's army away in death and destruction. God's people pass through the water of death and judgment and come out on the other side by the power of God. It's a consistent theme throughout Scripture. And 1 Corinthians 10.4 connects this to the work of Christ down the road. And both of these things are explicitly connected to baptism, right? This is where I want to get you to. Means of grace. We talked about this building our faith, that God has these means of grace that he uses to strengthen us, right? To nurture our faith. Baptism is one of them. These sacraments he gave us, baptism and the Lord's Supper. What baptism is, it's this means of grace meant to strengthen our faith. And the symbol is so profound when you understand it. When you stand there to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is marking your union with Christ, that you've been joined to Christ by faith. And in union with him, when you go into the water, those waters are the waters of death and judgment. And what happens in baptism? You go into them, 
and you come out of them united to Christ. You go into the waters, but you don't stay there because your death has been absorbed by Jesus Christ. The death that your sin deserved was already taken. So you pass through death and into resurrection life, united to him by faith. So, beloved, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. It's one thing for the Lord to calm the storm and bring the disciples out of where they thought they were going to physically die. You have been delivered from spiritual death, from the wrath of God into eternal glory. That is yours, right? What happens on the Sea of Galilee is just a dim picture compared to the spiritual reality that it is getting the disciples ready for, that they are going to understand after Jesus does this work and the Holy Spirit comes and teaches them. That's the ultimate anchor for our hope. Whatever we have to endure here, whatever hardness comes, our ultimate good and glory is secured because of the finished work of Jesus. And there is nothing left to do about it. There's nothing left to add to it. We cannot improve upon it. It is finished. He sat down at the right hand of the Father because it is done. There is no sacrifice left for sins. His righteousness is perfectly sufficient. Your ultimate good is secure. Whatever may come here. So you will pass through. Whatever it looks like, if you are in Christ, you will pass through. As surely as Christ has risen from the grave, he did so as the first fruits, as the model that every single one who is united in him by faith will follow. Resurrection is yours. The waters of the storm obeyed him and ceased. The waters of baptism obey him as well. Nourishing our faith with sustaining grace to trust the Lord of storms. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible account of the power and majesty of Jesus of his authority and his wisdom over the entire created order and what that means for us. Father, how he ultimately brings that to bear on our lives to deliver us from our sins and to bring us into life and glory. Lord, thank you for giving us faith in the one who does not fail us, in him. But Lord, we long for more. We long to have the confidence that his faithfulness deserves. And we are so far from that. So we ask that you would increase our faith by the work of your spirit through, through these means of grace that you've given us. Please grow us in our confidence and our trust in you. Day by day, give us more assurance that we can rest in your goodness towards us, in your power and authority over all things, in your wisdom in knowing how to work perfectly in the midst of all of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we're another one of these means of grace we get to receive is the Lord's Supper. Another one of the things that God uses to nourish our faith. We're going to do that in a moment. This sacrament is for those who are united to Christ by faith. have been baptized into his church. If that is you, this meal is yours. God has given it to you for your good. And so we're going to receive those elements as we sing here in just a minute. They're at the tables in kind of the middle of the auditorium. The clear cups have wine. The purple cups have grape juice. 
as we sing, just grab a cup, bread's on the bottom, so you just need one stack. And then when we finish this song, I'm going to come up and we'll receive that supper together. So let's stand and sing and receive those elements now.
Amen. All glory be to Christ. He is worthy of that glory if he had done nothing for us, just by virtue of who he is. But man, what has he done for us, church? He has done this for us. What we hold in our hands, very simple. Oh, first and foremost, before I forget, I know we ran out of grape juice during the whole thing, so if you're looking for it, there's some more back there now. So if you need something, go ahead and get it. I don't want you to miss out on what we're doing. But this meal that we're going to take, it's a two-way pledge for God. It points us backwards and forward. And it's God's pledge to us, first and foremost, that the work of Christ, the righteousness that he lived to clothe us in, and the death that he died to forgive us our sins, was for you. As you partake of this, that is what you are supposed to remember. Not Christ in the abstract, but Christ for you in particular. Right? And that it's his pledge that he has received the work of Christ on your behalf. There is no more wrath to pay. There is no more righteousness that you have to put on. All that was needed to please a holy God was done for you by him. And you've received it by faith. So the work is done. But it also points us forward, right? What we live through now is not the full joy, not the fullness of what Christ did that work to give us. There is more to come. We are in a period of waiting because he is still forgiving sinners and saving sinners. But once he has brought all his people in, there's going to come a day when he is going to judge sin and he is going to eradicate it and eradicate everything that it does. And every tear is going to pass away and death itself is going to be no more. And we're going to enter into eternal glory with him. And we are going to sit at a meal with the crucified Christ who died for us. And he is going to serve us the bread and the cup that he is waiting to eat until he does it with us, he says. This is a placeholder till we get to the real thing, the marriage supper of the lamb, when we enter into glory and perfect, unspeakable fellowship with the God who is so great and has been so good to us. So church, take the bread. This is Christ's body given for you. Do this in remembrance of him. Likewise, this cup is the new covenant of his blood shed for the remission of your sins. Do this in remembrance of him. Lord, we thank you for this work of Christ. We literally have no hope apart from it. We Like the disciples, all we can do is cry out, save us, Lord, we are going to perish. That is our cry, and we thank you and praise you that you have answered those cries. At such a cost, you have seen fit to deliver us from sin and from the wrath of a holy God and to reconcile us to yourself and so that we have such a great hope and promise ahead of us. Lord, nourish our faith as we receive this. Give us greater confidence in who you are and the promises that you have made to us that are the most sure and certain thing that exists in the world. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Church is gonna go out with a benediction from Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things To him be glory forever. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Go in grace and peace.